Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Buzz Knight, the host of Taking a Walk, music history on foot. And you can follow us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we appreciate if you leave us a review as well and share this with a friend. Coming up on this episode, really looking forward to meeting up with an old friend, Steve Morse, legendary music critic in Boston. He knows where all the bodies are buried. We're going to find out about it next on Taking a Walk. Hi, Steve. So great to be with you. Buzz, that was quite an intro. I don't get that every day. I was going to go deeper, but I figured we got to save some of this for this episode, right? I hope so. It's so great to be with you. We're walking the mean streets of Cambridge. Yep. And uh, it's a beautiful day. And... To take a walk in person is always a joy, but uh, reconnecting with you is a joy as well. Yeah, we go way back, so thank you. So, uh, do you remember the first time you walked into the Boston Globe newsroom? Oh, boy. Uh, I was a terrified kid, uh, freelancer, and I just uh, was in way over my head. I mean, the Globe... Uh, became a, a, a Goliath. You know, 2,000 people worked at the Globe in its heyday. Now, of course, newspapers have a fraction of that. So, you know, you were on your heels right from the get-go, and I had an appointment with some interview with some woman who grilled me, and, and all of a sudden they said, hey, let's let him do some freelancing, and I started freelancing music reviews, 
and I did uh, Club Passim, David Bromberg, and Vassar Clemens, and two you know legends in their own way. Chicago Blues and Vassar was a fiddle player from down south, and I just got turned on to, you know by the music, uh, turned on by the whole energy of the globe, and I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Took me four years to get hired, uh, but uh, it was well worth it. So what year did you get hired there? 78. Started freelancing in 75 and uh, hired in, in 78. But I'd grown up around Boston. I really had a kind of a blessed path around here because, you know, I caught all the shows at the old Boston Tea Party 10 years after, you know, Fleetwood Mac, all the British bands would come, Jethro Tull. And then I went 1969 I went over to uh, England for the summer. I was at an archaeological dig. I somehow conned my way into an archaeological dig, and I got free room and board. And I saw Led Zeppelin twice, and I saw the Rolling Stones at uh, Hyde Park with 400,000 people right after Brian Jones died in the swimming pool accident. And it was Mick Taylor's first gig. Very exciting. The Hells Angels uh, did security. And, of course, the Hells Angels in England were a very tame lot compared to the Hells Angels in California because later that summer, uh, Altamont happened where the Stones hired the, the Hells Angels in California and, you know, someone was killed. You know, a terrible tragedy. So, But I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, I just worked it up from there and... I, I, believe it or not, I went out to catch music 250 nights a year for 30 years. You never let up. I mean, I would go to a fair amount of shows, but I, I don't ever believe I went to a show around the Boston area <laughs> where I didn't see you at the show. Wow. Well, that's kind of scary. <laughs> My ex-wife would probably agree with you. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough... Uh, field in terms of a family life and so forth, you know, because you're just, you're out at night, I mean, a lot, and I wouldn't go to bed till 4.30 in the morning, usually, and, but, you know, Willie Nelson said, the nightlife, the nightlife ain't no good life, but it's my life, and that quote just resonated with me, and, you know, I'd show up, uh, you know, it's a later marriage, we had a son, and I'd show up at the, uh, school bus station and whatnot wearing a Metallica t-shirt and all the, I'll be the only man there all the rest were, were, were women and they looked at me like I was from hell <laughs> so when did you know you had this attraction with music at what point in your life well I, I you know played classical piano as a kid my mother tried to get me into that unsuccessfully and I just you know, gravitated towards rock and roll instead. Saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And again, right place, right time. And I, I couldn't play well enough to be a professional, but I found a way to you know, get into the music business as, as a music critic. And uh, you know, I just, just never, never looked back. I mean, it was something that, uh, you know, you don't meet a music critic every day for big daily newspaper so you know I was very fortunate and then I get on the nominating committee of the Rock Hall of Fame 
We got the ball rolling on ACDC, got them nominated. And now I teach uh, Berkeley College of Music. I teach the online rock history course, which I wrote. They came to me and they said, hey, you know, we've had two guys who flopped. They didn't, didn't write it. You know, it's not an easy course to write. It took me a year and a half to write it. But I knuckled down and uh, it's been a big success. And I can do it out of my home. I just I do a video chat once a week online. And got some great kids. I've got uh, Amelia Presley this semester. She's, uh, she's uh, you know, a distant cousin of, of, of Elvis Presley. So, you know, Bernie Taupin's daughter took the course last uh, semester. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been very exciting. I've had a continual kind of curve, you know, since I was a kid. It's like a joy to be for your work in and around music, your, your life. Well, it is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I covered Live Aid, I covered major events, I covered the, you know, the last two Woodstocks, uh, Woodstock 2, Woodstock 3, 1994, 1999, respectively. And I, I just, uh, you know, you're sitting there like a Live Aid and the Led Zeppelin reunion's going on and I'm 30 feet away down in Philadelphia with 100,000 people around me. And that excited me. The bigger the show, the more excited I got. And you had a press room with about 75 writers from around the world. And uh, that really fueled my competitive instinct. I was always very competitive as a basketball player, as a kid. And I just loved competing on deadline against uh, other writers from around the world. Well, as you know, on this podcast, uh, Joel Selvin, the uh, San Francisco Chronicle uh, critic of record and yep. author, was on. So you guys were friendly, but also rivals as well. And there was a spirit, well, right? We uh, hung out, I remember, once after U2 opened its Pop Mart tour. Was that 1991, I think? And that was in Vegas. And Joel and I hung out later that night. And he's just a fun guy. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, competitive, just good of mutual respect. Um, you know, he, he's uh, a veteran, I'm a veteran. So, you know, you, you, you don't meet the, every day people who kind of do your job, as I say. It's an unusual job. And now there's fewer music critics because every, everybody's a blogger now. Right. You know, everybody in his or mother. a podcaster. Or, well, <laughs> well, some are better than the others, and you're you're one of them, Buzz. So you know, that's why people want to talk to you because you've got a experience in the field, and you know you're not just kind of popping out of the woodwork. So it's it's. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, the Globe now doesn't even have a staff uh, music critic. They they just do freely use freelance. Isn't that a good shame? It is. I mean, look at all of media, right? Where where it's changed, you know, the way the radio business has changed, um, the way television has changed, the way print journalism—it's uh, shifting quickly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did my radio stint. I did that one once a week. I had a show, Morse on Music, for WBOS. I remember. Come on and talk about. I see you in the hallway. In fact, I do. You see me in the hallway. Right. Occasionally a little hungover. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Probably had a steak and cheese sandwich with me to perk me up. Um, <laughs> that is that is the magic elixir for sure. <laughs> you know, well, we'd have, you know, Greg Almond would call in. You know, we had some a lot of fun. I called in my chips. You know, some of the people I'd known through the years, and and I enjoyed radio, but my my forte was writing, uh, and that's what I, I did. You know, I think the best. Um, and and the Globe, uh, you know, top ten paper. So it, it you know, just immediate respect. And a lot of the acts would only do one interview in each market, uh, and that would be the Globe. You know, you do the biggest paper. So I was really riding a high my whole life. Uh, my professional life has been on a real high, and personal life. Well, that's a whole other story, <laughs> whole other podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, professional life, I, I, I just can't complain at all. So let's talk about some of those interviews and some of your, your favorite interviews that you've done through your career, because I know you've talked to pretty much everybody at one point. Well, one of my favorites was Bob Marley. Uh, went down to the uh, Essex Hotel in New York, right by the Central Park. And they were on about the 14th floor. It was 11 o'clock in the morning interview, and I took the shuttle. It might have even been the Trump shuttle in those days. Trump, <laughs> Trump, remember Trump had the yeah, shuttle sure. from Boston to New York? Yep. And I arrived, zip over there at 11, couldn't find the room, and there's this lady, you know, out, you know, working in the hallway, and I said, gee, do you, do you know where Bob Marley's room is? And she said, go down here, take a right, and follow your nose. <laughs> I go, oh, what am I getting into? So I walk in, you know, there's two giant splits, you know, king-size Jamaican splits, you know, the five-inch jobs. Yeah. It's just 11 in the morning. He's got Lee Scratch Perry's in there, the famous Jamaican producer. His band is in there. There's a whole entourage. They're kicking the soccer ball around the room. And, and you know, nobody's paying any attention to me. You know, I'm Babylon, you know, what, what, what am I doing there? And Bob's in the corner reading, the, on a, sitting on the couch reading the book of Revelations. Lion of Judah, you know, the whole kind of basis for Rastafarianism. And occasionally people, you know, would stop the soccer ball and say, oh, Brother Bob, Brother Bob, you know, you know start talking in tongues. And I'm not quite with the program because I've got to get an interview here. He was due to play the Mandla concert, which is a famous peace concert at Harvard Stadium, you know, the next week or so. It's a big interview for him and for me. And I just finally erupted. I said, Bob, the Boston Globe, I, I appreciate the Bible reading, but I, I really need to get something on your music. And the rest of the room wanted to kill me. The guys said, well, get him out of here. And Bob looked at me in the eye and he said, you're right, man. And he calmed down everybody and had me come over, sit on the couch, gave me a great interview for about 20 minutes or half an hour. And then I was shepherded out, and the soccer balls continued, you know, banging off the windows and everything. And the two joints continued as well. <laughs> and I was gone. Great interview, huh? Amazing. It must have been. Yeah, well, you just never knew what was going to happen sometimes. I love the scene. You know? Uh, another favorite was Dolly Parton. Boy, what a sweetie. She's like a little tiny button, you know, she's like about four foot ten, and I'm six foot five, so she got a big kick out of that, but, you know, I was just just lucky, I mean, I, I was interviewed Springsteen a bunch, the Stones a whole bunch, 
Keith Richards was probably my favorite. You know, he was such so down to earth, and you know, he'd rather talk about uh, you know guitar strings or something like that rather than some law. You know, Mick gets into law. You know, went to the London School of Economics, and Mick knows everything that in the world. You know, and he'd be the first to tell you. <laughs> yeah, he he was something else, and. I talked to him, you know, in succession. It was, it was Mick first, and then Keith. Separate rooms at Rolling Stone Records when they had, remember, they had their subsidiary label. Yep. And Mick, you know, likes a joint, and does not, you know, share or make any attempt to. And he's flying after about five, ten minutes. And I said, Mick, I'm here. I had two tape recorders because I was afraid one might break down. The redundancy factor. <laughs> yes. Redundancy factor. He's laughing his ass off. Look at you with the two mic. And I go, oh, sorry, if I blow this, I'm in trouble. And, and you know, I said, look, I'm not going to ask you about your sex life. He'd been linked to some supermodel from Thailand that week. You know how it was. Yeah. Um, and he said, well, that would be refreshing. And five minutes later, he's talking about his sex life. <laughs> And I didn't bring it up, but I figured, all right, I'll indulge him a minute, just kind of get through this. And I said, well, Mick, what, what, do you have any mood music you put on? You know, any, do you play the Stones music at all? You've got a lady in, you know, in your room? And he says, oh, no, I never play any Stones music. I don't play any music at all. I just coo in their ear. <laughs> and I, that pretty much, I was cooing out the door at that point. I love that. I just cool in their ear. I love it. Oh my God. Did you get Springsteen uh, early on? Uh, no, no. I think it was. Uh, well, let's see. It was. It was back in the river. So that yeah, I guess that was uh, what, late seventies. That's right. I, it was down in uh, Providence, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, Bruce kept me waiting. He's a night owl. And I didn't get in the room until about two in the morning. I still had to drive back to Boston an hour away. But we started talking about Hank Williams because he was getting into Hank and, you know, the imagery from down by the river and, you know, all that. And, you know, he, he said, I'm, I'm driving the, my band up a wall because all I want to do is play Hank Williams on the bus. <laughs> but he was just a wonderful guy. <clears throat> and another time, I interviewed him down in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and, you know, again, a late interview, but this time it was because he was greeting Make-A-Wish kids. There were about uh, 10, 12 Make-A-Wish kids in wheelchairs and whatnot coming up to him backstage in the corridor there, and he paid attention. He talked to each one of them for five to ten minutes. It wasn't some meet and greet where you just shake hands and run. And I had utmost respect for him to do that, to see the kids were crying, and, oh, my God, Bruce Springsteen's really caring about me, asking questions about me. and You know, it was just a lovely moment. Um, so, yeah, I have a lot of respect for Bruce. Any Beatles? Uh, McCartney, a couple times. Um, he's, uh, he, he's a struggle. He's, he's kind of a quipster. You know, he likes to joke around with the media. Uh, I don't have any breakthrough moments. And Ringo is kind of ridiculous. Ringo would do uh, phone interviews for five minutes, max. And I remember in my watch, I, I did four minutes and 45 seconds. I was still trying to cram in a question. And Ringo says, 
Okay, last question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, man, come on, cut me some slack here. Yeah. But he didn't have much respect for the media at that point. So yeah, I sometimes had to follow in the footsteps of real asshole, you know, interviewers and Emmy Lou Harris was, was one example. A quick, quick story about her uh, at Tanglewood. I interviewed her at Tanglewood. And she had had somebody, I think, from the Washington Post come on her bus and then turn into Savager in a, in a magazine piece. So she was really down on the, the media, and I really had to prove myself. And Phil Kaufman, her, her manager, who'd also been, you know, Graham Parsons' manager, and he's the one who burned Graham Parsons' body in the desert and, you know, California, you know, rock, rock and roll story. He comes up to and, and turns around right into my face and moons me. <laughs> Takes his pants down and moons me. And he goes, okay, interview over. Oh, my God. So, and then he looks laughing at the, what's going on. Oh, so, my God. Yeah, I guess I've had a few eventful ones. <laughs> so, Boston, during that era that you uh, describe early on in particular, had some amazing venues that have uh, disappeared. Uh, talk about maybe a few of those venues and maybe some shows that you remember at, uh, at some of those places. Well, let's see. Boston Tea Party is just one of the legends. Um, you know, just saw a lot of acts there. It was at a tabernacle down in the south end. And, you know, I, I was sorry to see that place go. It was a ballroom. Uh, the early rock and roll rooms tended to be ballrooms. And then uh, later on, there was a place called the Crosstown Bus, which hardly anyone remembers. It was in Brighton, and it was only open for two weeks because they didn't have an entertainment license. But for one, the first week, they had the doors. Wow. So Jim Morrison and the doors, and they put up uh, go-go cages for women to dance in. They tried to recreate a Sunset Strip, L.A. mystique. In, in, in Brighton, which is kind of, a, those days, a working-class, you know, city. And, you know, Morrison was chugging every bottle that was handed to him. In those days, they didn't frisk you at the door very well. And so he's bottles coming up, and he's drinking everything. At the end of the night, he was just completely hammered, you know, rolling around on stage, and his li Lizard King motions and right. everything. His nickname was Lizard King. And, and afterwards, uh, coming out of the men's room, and Jim is weaving his way towards the men's room. They didn't have a backstage men's room. It was just a small little place. And I just held up my hand. And, and you know, I'm real tall. And he took it as a guide. And he, he said, oh, thank you. And he came, he steered his way into the men's room. And we high-fived each other. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, my God. This, this is, I've got to do this as a career somehow. You what know? a moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But two weeks the place existed. Two weeks. And this, the second week was the Jay Giles Band. And I talked to Peter Wolf later, and he said, yeah, we had to bring our, our amplifiers down the back uh, fire escape to get away as the police were closing it down. <laughs> so those are kind of wild and crazy days and wow. back then. But, but then, of course, the old Boston Garden. The old Boston Garden, where Billy Joel had a great comment about that. He said, Steve, even, even, even hockey sounds bad at the Garden. 
<laughs> You're talking about the acoustics. Even hockey sounds bad. And remember that place? It was a terrible yeah. acoustics. Oh, God, yeah. Terrible acoustics. But you saw a few shows there. Many shows there. Uh, Billy Joel, he tour every year, whether he had a new album or not. And, you know, most people only toured with an album in those days. The labels didn't want them over, you know, overplaying unless they had product to sell. But Billy said, hell with that, I'm going out. And every show in those days, he would end it by saying, don't let the bastards get you down. Wow. Now, he still does that once in a while. I don't know how often, but in those days, it was automatic, he would say that. Because so. yep. he had trouble. His own, his own wife was his manager at one time. They broke up, and he, he ended up in court with her. You know, he had bad, bad counsel, so he, he, he was very cynical about the music business. Do you remember the famous James Brown show at the Garden? I was not at that show. Um, I remember uh, talking to Peter Wolf extensively about it. He and Muddy Waters couldn't get in. He was hanging out with Muddy Waters and the police wouldn't let him in. You know, because they were so worried about it the night after Martin Luther King died and there was going to be an eruption. And there's a good book about that, the, the night that James Brown saved Boston. Because they broadcast that, it was on NPR. It was on the NPR channel, which never used to broadcast live concerts, but they did it as a community service to keep people at home. So Boston didn't have any significant, you know, rioting or, or, or burning and looting like some of the other places, other cities did. So, and James Sullivan is a writer, you know, to this. He's around here now. He wrote the book, uh, The Night James Brown Saved uh, Saved Boston. And yeah, I, I would talk to James like on the phone later in the years. And the mayor at the, at the time of that show was Mayor Kevin White. And James would hop on and say, how's Mayor White doing? Well, he hasn't been mayor for 10 years, but <laughs> how's he doing? Tell him James says hello. Because <laughs> they really bonded, you know. Right. White came out and did the MC role, and, you know, he took an active, proactive, you know, night. But it was tremendous. I mean, I was not there, but I feel like I was because I've heard so much about it. How about Dylan moments, either concert-wise or uh, ever have a shot to interview him? Dylan moments, most of it, what I remember is uh, people running the opposite direction because, you know, his shows would, would kind of devolve into these, you know, he'd do his songs and he'd do them so differently that people didn't know what they were. Remember, you know, he would change the arrangements and I got to one show and people were literally almost trampling me to get out. It was the Boston Garden almost trampling me to get out because they were so fed up with he wasn't doing the songs uh, the way they wanted to hear them. But that's Dylan, you know, and I went up to Woodstock. He lived near Woodstock when the, the whole festival took place in 69. And uh, this was oh, about 10 years ago. And, and they have a, a, a amphitheater now, you know, next to the grounds of, of the original Woodstock. And he was playing. And I said, oh, here's a chance for him to say something about Woodstock. I mean, he regrets that he didn't play the festival. He didn't say a thing. You know, Dylan is famous for saying nothing. Like the Grateful Dead rarely talks, and Dylan rarely says anything. And I was pissed. I drove all the way up to Woodstock thinking, oh, this could be a cultural moment here. You know, saying, I'm sorry I missed Woodstock. And, but no, nothing. Just the same show of, re of reinterpreting his hits so you didn't know what the hell they were. 
I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. Oh, don't get me wrong. He's I a songwriter. He's Bob. As a performer, he can be just so quirky. Up and down. Up and down. Yeah. Just like uh, this guy Van Morrison, too. Oh, gee. <laughs> yeah, Van used to live around Cambridge and wrote part of Astral Weeks here in 1968. And I interviewed him later on, and I said, you know, I asked him about Cambridge. He said, why are you asking me that? And I said, well, I thought I'd get a little local color here. You know, you, I'm not good in local color. Next question. You know, he can be so grumbly. You know, and I, I'm just scared. You know, by that point, I'm going, oh, my Jesus. You know. Was he hanging around with Pete Wolf uh, at that period? Yes, he, was, he still does. Yeah. Yeah, he still has stories of them careening through Harvard Square, you know, hitting the bars down there. Yeah, they're, they're good friends. Those boys. They're good boys. Those good boys. My God, I love it. What but stories. Yeah, the Grateful Dead, I got a classic from 1969. Uh, they played the Boston Tea Party. And Pigpen was with him at the time, you know, a keyboard player. And he fell off the stage during Love Light, Turn On Your Love Light, big climactic song. And uh, just, just was so drunk, he just fell off the stage. And the band continued to play. They didn't stop and, you know, say, gee, what happened? You know, they just... I remember Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir exchanging glances saying, oh, he fell off stage again. <laughs> Let's just keep vamping. So they just vamped their way through the song. The roadies dusted Pigpen off and got him back up, and he finished the song. Oh, my God. Have you seen Bob Weir's workout that he does before shows these days? No. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's this intense... Uh, weight training, he's swiveling weights over his head and doing various, you know, just, I don't know, stretching moves, certainly, but a lot of weight-related stuff. He looks like he's in great shape. Yeah, well, I've got a lot of respect for him. He's done me a lot of favors through the years. And, you know, I interviewed Jerry four times. I was lucky to, to do that, but uh, I interviewed Bob Moore. You know, Jerry, you never knew what his condition was going to be. Uh, but Bob would back, do the backup interviews, and you know, I, I have a lot of. He did an interview for my course at Berkeley College of Music. Wow! And uh, talked all about the acid tests and the Ken Kesey days, doing acid up on Ken Kesey's ranch, and just fantastic stuff. Fantastic I love that. Stuff. My God! Well, let's talk about WBCN during that era too, and what an integral part it was around the music scene of Boston. Well, BCN was the station. I mean, wasn't it the freeform rock station, one of the leading lights of the whole new freeform FM movement where DJs could play what they wanted, you know, before the consultants came in and sort of said, here's what you've got to play now. And, and it was just exciting. You know, you'd listen to the radio and you'd, you'd hear about, uh, gee, Led Zeppelin's in town tonight. And they, the bands used to do three nights, Thursday through Saturday. And the Thursday, there'd be like half a house. You know, people might not have heard too much about them. And by Friday and Saturday, there was a lot of word of mouth. Word of mouth was big. And, you know, the smoke shops was coming in, so people would talk about, you know, hey, go see Zeppelin, they're really good. So by Saturday night, there'd be lines at the door to get in. But BCN was just part, you know, they were just another part of that whole revolution taking place and they were quite political in those days too they were involved in you know the harvard protests you know vietnam protests and 
you know, they smuggled some papers out of Harvard. Remember that whole thing? Yeah. You know, Danny Schechter, the news dissector, they call him. Yep. So, you know, they were exciting, very exciting station. And, you know, you, you listen to them just, just every minute. But, but they, you know, they'd, they'd play like 20-minute songs. And who does that? You know, today you don't hear that anymore. But Yeah, we had Charles Laquadera on the podcast. And mm -hmm. Charles was talking about this one event where uh, when he was doing late nights when mm. I guess Jerry Garcia, Dwayne Allman, they came up and hung out during the show and uh, I think played as well. I think somewhere uh, yes, a portion yeah, of this yeah. exists. That's, that's, that's as they did a documentary that came out uh, a couple of years ago and that, that's, they get some footage of that I believe a little bit. And BCN, they had for a while their, the studio right behind the, the tea party, right in the ballroom, so that you know the guys could come off stage and go right back there. So, imagine how exciting that was in those days. Yeah, you know? my God. So, what are you listening to these days? Oh, well, I'm coming, coming full circle. Stones, <laughs> <laughs> Zeppelin. Um, I still listen to Aftermath is my favorite Stones record. Uh, Painted Black is on that. It's the first album they wrote all the material for. They didn't do covers. So I, I listen to a lot of the old stuff. Um, and to be honest with you, old Yardbirds, I mean, Jeff Beck died not long ago, so it got me back into listening to you know, the Yardbirds. And I saw them as well. Um, so I, I just sort of come in full circle a little bit to the 60s. And um, as far as current rock acts, I'm I'm open to suggestions. Who's really good? I'm not. You know, I like the Susan Tedeschi, Tedeschi trucks, and some of that roots rocks, you know, stuff. But, but I'm looking for the next U2 or the next Nirvana, like everybody else is. And if you have any suggestions, let me know. I appreciate it. I appreciate you being on Taking a Walk. This has been an absolute joy. Yeah. Well, gee, good. Good to see you, Buzz. It's, it means a lot to to have you talk to me. I, I, I thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Oh. Gene, run! 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 